Well, good morning. Um, I want to thank the worship team again. Uh, just so such a blessing to my heart. I, I'm losing my voice, so I had to sit there and not sing, which was one of the hardest things to do this morning. So, But I want to have something left to, <clears throat> to share with you. Um, we are looking at the cross for the next, well, the next two weeks again. And I hope what you'll find is that when you talk about the cross, it's, it's multifaceted. And there's all kinds of things that we can learn. At the very core is our redemption, isn't it? But each of the gospel writers then focus on different aspects of that and entailments of that. And that's what we want to look at today from Luke's account. Tim has reminded us of the memorial of 9-11 today, 10-year anniversary. And on this anniversary, we think about the, uh, the crime against humanity, don't we? I mean, the, 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 the fact that innocent people are treated in this terrible way. And, and that's what a terrorist does, doesn't he? He kills the innocent. And so we, we think about crimes against humanity, and, and rightly so. Do you know, the most innocent person that ever lived was Jesus Christ. And it is at the cross that we see crimes against deity. So what I want to focus on today from Luke's account, which is just God's timing. Uh, Luke, more than any other gospel writers, emphasizes the innocence of Christ. All the gospel writers know that. But Luke puts it front and center. And so the question is, in a world of injustice, how do you respond? What do you do? So watch as we work through the text. Again and again, the thread of innocence in the midst of injustice. And how Jesus again and again responds to that. And as followers of Christ, as Pastor Tim preached or said, there's all kinds of applications for us. So let's walk through the story. And um, most of what you have here in Luke's account is only found in Luke. You don't find it in the other gospel writers. Which means he wants us to see something here that Matthew didn't tell us or didn't put front and center, but Luke is. So come with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 23. And I'd like to begin reading at verse 26. Again, what happens as Jesus is going to the cross. And then we'll look at what happens when he's on the cross. And lastly, responses to the cross. Okay? But first of all, on the way to the cross, verses 26 to 32, and we'll see some overlap with Matthew, but we'll see an account that's only found here in Luke's Gospel. When they led him away, they laid hold of one Simon of Cyrene coming in from the country, and placed on him the cross to carry behind, behind Jesus. We saw that last week. But here's something that's unique. Look at verse 27. There were following him a great multitude of the people. Seems kind of strange to us reading a passage like that and saying, I mean, are you telling me that when people are executed and died, it's kind of a gathering time for people to just kind of come and watch? Like, how many people watch? 
somebody being executed in America today. It's very limited, isn't it? But in antiquity, it was meant for people to come and watch. And so on the way, there's this group that's just coming to watch Jesus die. They're curious, which is interesting. But within that group, notice what happens. The Bible says there was certain women who were mourning and lamenting Jesus. In other words, in the midst of this group that was just coming along to watch another execution, they're just curious about this whole matter. There is a group of women, and the indication in the text, it's not the disciples of Jesus necessarily. Perhaps they're in there too, but it's larger than that. There are women who have been watching all of this, and they're lamenting and they're crying because they're saying, injustice. Injustice. This is wrong. Now, Jesus could have responded a bunch of ways to that, couldn't he have? He could have said, yeah, you're right, go tell somebody. Right? But notice what Jesus says in response. The focus moves away from him back to them. Notice what he says. And Jesus turning to them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me. But weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wounds that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the dry tree, what will happen, I'm sorry, in the green tree, what will happen in the dry? You see, they're lamenting rightly so for Christ and saying, injustice, injustice. And Jesus says, Jesus isn't denying that, but he says, do you know what is awaiting you? Let us cry for you rather than for me. Back when Jesus first came into the city, just a few days before, the Bible tells us that he looked over the city and he wept. Luke 19 says he wept because as he looked at these people, he said, I know what's going to happen to you because you have rejected me. And our Lord cries. And again, in this moment, when Jesus is facing injustice, he looks at others and says, We weep for you. Because the nation has rejected me, this is what the nation will experience. I mean, if it happens to a a green, healthy tree, when you would never expect anything to happen, speaking Jesus, speaking of himself. But an old dry tree, you're supposed to rip those down. That's what you do. That's what will happen to the nation which is dead. Do you see? And so even as he's on his way, to the cross, and people recognize the the injustice that he is experiencing, Jesus turns it back and says, I feel for you. Isn't that amazing? What happens at the cross? We know, verse 32, two others, criminals, are being led away with him to be put to death. Verse 33, when they came to the place called the skull, There they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, 
Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Doesn't that blow you away? What do you mean they don't know what they're doing? They know exactly what they're doing. They've been plotting it for years. They've been manipulating. The whole thing is a setup. What does Jesus mean? He stands on the cross. And so the first thing you see Jesus doing after telling people to lament for themselves, he's on the cross. And the first thing he says, he looks to the Father and he says, from the very depth of my heart, there is nothing I desire more for these people than to experience your forgiveness. What? Look at what they're doing to you. But in that moment again, he intercedes for them before the Father and says, Father, my desire is that you would forgive them. Now, they don't know what they're doing. I thought that was interesting. So, as you know, Luke has written two books for us, right? Luke and the book of Acts. It was interesting. I was reading through Acts again, parts of Acts. And I remember the passage in Acts 13 and 17 when Paul is preaching and he, he sees pagans who have never heard the gospel. And he says, look, you guys are ignorant and, and, and God is being gracious now and giving you the truth. Okay, I'm okay with that one. I mean, that, that makes sense to me. But if you go back to chapter 2 and 3 of Acts, Peter and later Paul in Acts 13 both will say something like this. The religious leaders put Jesus Christ on the cross out of ignorance. I, you know, I scratch my head and I say, like, I don't think they were that ignorant, Lord. But his point is this. It doesn't mean they're not culpable and responsible, folks. They were. That's not the point. What it means is the world never saw the magnitude of what God was doing on the cross. They never realized that this was God in the flesh dying for the sins of the world. They were ignorant of the depth of meaning of the cross and they didn't pick it up. And so Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's interceding for these people who are willfully ignorant of him. Saying, oh, how I want them to experience your grace. Isn't that unbelievable, folks? That that's what our Lord will do. The text then goes on and describes these ignorant people. Everything from the Romans to the religious leaders. Notice what it says. Verse 34. We read that some of the ignorant group are soldiers just callously there casting lots for his clothes. For them, their ignorance is Here's another criminal. They didn't see a thing. Look at verse 35. The Bible says, And the people stood by looking on. Another group of the ignorant, if you will, is that mass of individuals that were coming out and curiously just watching. Who else is part of the ignorant group, Lord? Look at verse 35b. Even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen ones. So Jesus looks out at callous soldiers, curious people, religious leaders who sneer at him. What else? 
Look at verse 36. The soldiers see the religious leaders doing it, so they figure they might as well get in on the act. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, kind of a stimulant, if you will, saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, there was also an an inscription above him saying, this is the king of the Jews. So you know what they're doing? They're watching the religious leaders who are mocking Jesus. They see the placard above him and they think, let's just do the same thing. So they say virtually the same thing. Save yourself. The religious leader said, why doesn't he save himself? And the criminals are going to end up saying the same kind of thing, aren't they? But Luke only emphasizes what the one criminal says negatively. Look at what the text says. One of the criminals, verse 39, who were hanging there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So when our Lord offers his prayer to God and says, Father, my desire is that they might experience your grace. Who is the they? It's calloused, hard soldiers. It's people that mock and ridicule him. It's people that are there out of curiosity. And it's desperate criminals that say, Look, pal, if you can do something, do it and make me part of it. And for all of them, Jesus says, I want you to know God's forgiveness. That's something. So not only does he intercede for his, for his ignorant opponents, if you will. Oh, you know, there's one other thing here before I jump on. I, I, there's so much to say. Do you remember in Christ's ministry where he would often talk these passages of discipleship and he would say, um, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to be willing to lose your life if you're going to save it. People that try to save their life will lose it. People who lose their life will save it. You remember those passages? In many ways, there was a blasphemous film years ago called The Last Temptation of Christ. If you remember it back in the, I think it's the 70s, it goes way back, way back. This is the last temptation of Christ right here. When they're hurling at him three times in a row, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. And the question is, would Christ lose himself or save himself in this moment? He had taught his disciples repeatedly. You lose your life so you might save it. And on the cross, in three waves as that comes at him again and again, Jesus lives out his teaching and loses his life so that we could be saved. Isn't that great? I mean, that's the cross, isn't it? That's Jesus on the cross. He had taught his disciples, look, 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 when people hate you and malign you in the Sermon on the Plain back in Luke 6, I want you to bless them. I want you to pray for them, which is exactly what he does for his enemies on the cross. He's living out his teaching, folks. Right in front of us. Notice then. When you come to verse 40. Not only does Jesus intercede for his enemies. He forgives one who repents. You see. Were those people forgiven. When Jesus said. Father forgive them for they know not what they do. Were they forgiven? No. They cannot experience his forgiveness. Unless they repent. But it shows God's heart. 
Jesus' heart to want to extend forgiveness if they would only repent. Do, do you see? What does this one criminal on the cross say? He's watching all this. And, you know, one of my great questions when I get to heaven is, I want to interview this guy. We know so little about him. But here, in a matter of hours, because you know from Matthew's account, he also hurls attacks at Jesus. That's what Matthew tells us. What changes for this guy? Well, we know there's going to be earthquakes and darkness is coming and all that once 12 o'clock noon comes. But this apparently happens before that. So this guy didn't see any of the miraculous change there. The only thing he saw was Jesus. And there was something about Jesus that turned everything in his life. So, notice, notice what the text says. The other, verse 40, answered and rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. So this guy is on the cross watching all this and all he can do is talk to the other thief initially and say, hey, 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 we are guilty. He is innocent. That's injustice. This is justice. That's what he says. We deserve what we're getting. We're criminals through and through. Not him. And then almost in desperation, he looks to Jesus. Look at what he says. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He didn't know a whole lot, did he? Matter of fact, I love the way Ken Geyer says this in his reaccount of this. He says, the thief didn't know much theology. He only knew three, three things. That Jesus was a king, that his kingdom was not of this world, and that this king had the power to bring even the most unworthy into his kingdom. But that was enough. And in an intimate moment with the Savior, a lifetime of moral debt is canceled. Amidst the humiliating abuse of the crowd, the excruciating pain of the cross, Jesus was still about his father's business. Even with his eyes sinking on the feverish horizon of death, he was telling a common thief about the uncommon riches of heaven. Isn't that great? So Jesus is on the cross. It's all about injustice. It's all about his innocence. And all he can do is look back at those who have maligned and attacked him and said, I want him to be forgiven. And when one guy merely says, could you remember me? <laughs> What's Jesus say? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Cross tells us a lot about Jesus, folks, doesn't it? A lot about his love. Verse 44 to 46 Jesus is going to commit himself to his Father. But not before the Father 
tells you where this whole thing is going. It was now about the sixth hour. It was noon. Darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour for those last three hours. The sun was obscured. And the veil of the temple was torn in two. We don't hear about the earthquake in Luke. But he doesn't want us to forget. The only reason Jesus can say this kind of thing to a lost sinner is because everything is going to change because of what Jesus is going to do. And that veil is torn from the bottom down. Great stuff. But then he says this. Jesus, verse 46, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Did you notice in Luke's account, prayer envelops the cross. It starts out, Father, doesn't start out God. Remember when we read Matthew's account? That prayer to God showing the distance, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Yeah, that's part of the cross. But Luke wants us to see the intimacy of the cross between the Father and Son. So he talks about a prayer at the beginning. Father, forgive them. And at the end, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he dies. How does everybody respond to this? Notice, after his death, the centurion, perhaps one of the ones who had been mocking him while he was on the cross, we don't know, or maybe not, but nonetheless standing there at least, notice what he says. When the centurion saw what had happened. Well, had he seen the temple being torn into? I, I don't think so. He saw the darkness. But I would want to argue he also saw Jesus. There was something about Jesus on the cross that touches both a criminal about Jesus' innocence and a centurion about Christ's innocence, isn't there? Certainly, this man was righteous, or we could say, translate it, certainly this man was innocent. Do you know, if you went back and read the previous passage when, when Jesus stands before Pilate, Luke says three times when the other gospel writers basically will tell us only once. Three times it will tell us Jesus is innocent, Jesus is innocent, Jesus is innocent from the mouth of Pilate himself. So Pilate recognizes his innocence. The women on the way to the cross recognizes his innocence. A criminal sees him and recognizes his innocence. And a centurion which sees the whole thing recognizes his innocence. Jesus was unjustly treated on the cross, folks. He should never have had to go there, humanly speaking. He had to go there, divinely speaking. And so the centurion says... He's innocent. What does the curious crowd say? Those bunch that were just standing around and watching. Notice what the text says. And all the multitude who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return beating their breasts. 
You know, that expression is used one other time in Luke. Remember when Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the publican? Pharisee standing up saying, Lord, I've done all this stuff for you. That passage. The Bible tells us that publican is down on his knees, beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, this doesn't mean they repented, but you know what it does mean? Even the crowd that came out to watch him die moves away from that experience saying, we have never seen anything like that before in our lives. There was an injustice done to this man this day. Do you see? When you think about this text, when you think about Jesus, I find two responses to injustice. One is intimate trust. Father, Father. And the other is gracious love for others. Specifically, one's enemies. So he's able to be kind to the women. He's able to be kind to everybody standing there because at the end of the day, Jesus is living out the Sermon on the Plain right before us. So, the point of the passage, God's way to overcome injustice is to intimately trust the Father and to graciously love one's enemy. Doesn't sound like the normal way that we handle those things, though, does it? Somebody hurts you at work. Family member. First reaction is retaliation. And that's not what you see with Christ, is it? Christ is able to entrust himself to God and bless those who have cursed him. It's a totally different worldview. You know what I couldn't help thinking about when I thought about this passage? Two other passages, and then I'll let you go. Couldn't help thinking about Stephen in Acts 7. You know, why don't you flip over there for just a second? You're talking about living out our faith in a Christ-like way. Luke, um, Luke knows exactly what he's doing. When he gives you this picture of Jesus on the cross, and then when he writes his second book and what he says about Stephen. Notice what he does here. What you notice when you read in Acts chapter 6, um, leading up to chapter 7 is the whole attack on Stephen is unjust. They come up with fabricated lies. They manipulate. They do the whole thing. Sound familiar? Just like there was false witnesses attached to Jesus, so there's false witnesses attached to Stephen. Injustice, plain and simple. And he's brought quickly in before the Sanhedrin and he gives an incredible sermon in which he indicts the nation. No question about that. And at the end, they are so upset, they break with protocol. They weren't permitted to kill this man. You can't do that in antiquity. They were under Roman control. But at this moment, this is an ancient lynching of Stephen. And they take him and they're going to sweep out and they're going to just kill this man. But notice what happens in chapter 7. This is incredible. Look down if you would. At verse, uh, Let me just start reading in verse 54. When the crowd 
had heard his sermon, they were cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth at him. You're pretty mad at that point. You know, if you're gnashing your teeth, you're pretty upset. And being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus sitting. Is that what your text says? Standing. Why would Jesus be standing? Because that's his son that's being mistreated right now. You see, Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So here's a man on his way to die. And he's entrusting himself to God. Isn't he? And he's saying, It's okay, because Jesus is there waiting for me. It's incredible. Well, this doesn't go over so well that he shares that with the crew. Because then, verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice, covering their ears. Remember little kids do that sometimes? You know, when a kid does, when you're a little kid and you don't want to hear what the other person says, I don't hear you, I don't hear you, I don't hear you. That's what they do. They're a bunch of little kids doing the same kind of thing. And they rush out and they begin to stone him. And look what he does in verse 59. They went out. They went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What's that sound like? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then look at verse 60. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Here is a man who is living just like his Lord. We had time. I'd read through that passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter is writing to that church, group of churches. He says, you know what? Matter of fact, I'm going to read it anyway. We'll take a minute. Look for just a second over at 1 Peter chapter 2. It's too good. It's just too good. Jesus has so impressed his people with what he did on the cross that they can't help talking about it. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He was innocent. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Verse 24, as he himself bears our sins in his body on the cross. The truth of Luke, that Luke says in Luke chapter 23, he says again in the life of Stephen, And years later, toward the end of his life, when Peter is writing back on that event, he says, yeah, it's exactly right. We are to live in such a way that we constantly entrust ourselves to God in the midst of injustice and show kindness to those that are mistreating us. That's what it means to live the cruciform life, folks. And I don't tell you it's easy. Just yesterday, sat with a family 
in the afternoon whose story of abuse is horrendous of what people have experienced. And I, I have to ask myself, what does it mean to live like Christ in the midst of those kinds of situations? Is it easy? It's complicated. It is hard. It will stretch you. It will do all kinds of difficult things in your life. But what makes Christianity so different is that you can put a Christian in a place where they're being maligned and abused and that rather than responding back, they entrust themselves to God who will handle the justice issue and are then freed to bless those who have cursed us. It is hard, and I don't know what your scenario is. I know, I know one thing. Everybody in here has faced an injustice. Everybody. And how you handle that, the progress, all that has to be done carefully and wisely. I understand all of that. I do. But there must be something different for us as Christians. And the reason we can live differently is because our Lord did first. And Luke doesn't want us to forget that about the cross. That we can overcome evil with good. Let's pray.